This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. If you live in Baltimore and have stepped outside of your home, or you have traveled through the city in the last few months, the Baltimore Police Department has a record of your movements. Since May of 2020, there are planes in the sky circling above the city of Baltimore every day, tracking people's movements everywhere they go. Represented by lawyers from the National ACLU and the ACLU of Maryland on April 9th, 2020, leaders of a beautiful struggle, Erica Bridgeford, a co-founder of the Baltimore Ceasefire 365 Project, and Kevin James, a community organizer and hip-hop musician, filed a lawsuit against the Baltimore Police Department to challenge the constitutionality of deploying this persistent, wide-area aerial surveillance program that tracks the outdoor movements of everyone in Baltimore. This kind of tracking is an invasive search without a warrant and an infringement of their right of association. It is a violation of the Fourth and First Amendments. And what happens with the spy planes in Baltimore matters to the whole country because it will determine whether this invasive technology spreads. The private company behind the spy planes already has its sights on other cities. We foresee the technology being deployed in other cities that have majority Black residents and where activists are rising up against abuse and killings by police. We know that the... We know that the Baltimore Police Department should be the last place to test this mass surveillance technology. It has a long history of racial bias, corruption, police abuse, police brutality, unconstitutional practices that violate the rights of residents, particularly Black residents. Today we'll be joined by Davon Love, the Public Policy Director for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle which is a grassroots think tank that advances the public policy interests of Black people in Baltimore, and David Roga, Senior Staff Attorney for the ACLU of Maryland. We we will discuss the Spy Planes Program, the legal challenge, our privacy rights, government surveillance, and the impact the planes are having on residents, especially Black residents. So, Davon, David, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely. Really appreciate you both being on this podcast so we can have this really important discussion about privacy, Baltimore City, and policing during this unprecedented uprising that we're we're living through. So, David, for people outside of Baltimore or people, you know, who may not be in the know, what is the Spy Plane Program? The Spy Plane Program is the most invasive surveillance system ever uh, established in an American community in the nation's history. It is a system by which planes flying overhead 12 hours a day with incredibly sophisticated cameras and software developed for the war in Iraq create a constant slow frame rate video record of everywhere that everybody in Baltimore goes anytime they walk out their door. It does this by photographing over 90% of the city once per second and stitching those photographs together at a resolution sufficient to separate one human being from another and creating and then storing the video record of everyone's movements. And in so doing, it creates a virtual time machine allowing police to go to any location at any moment in time when the planes are flying and then trace the movements of everyone who was there backwards and forwards in time. And by doing that, the police are able to identify who those dots on the screen are by tracing where they come from and where they go to. Baltimore is a city where approximately 75% of the population lives in single-family housing. Uh, And so simply by knowing 
what house those dots go to or come from, that by itself uh, is often sufficient to identify them. And this aerial surveillance network is also linked to the city's network of ground-based surveillance cameras, which are much more heavily concentrated in the black neighborhoods in Baltimore. And so as the dot on the screen passes by one of those ground-based cameras, that can be precisely timed so that the feeds from those cameras can then be looked at to see a photograph of the person passing. And the same is true with the city's network of automated license plate readers, which are both mounted on police cars and in fixed locations and which track the movement of cars throughout the city and photograph them. Uh, and it can be linked to private surveillance cameras, such as ring doorbells and, and the like. So all of this together creates a system that has never existed uh, in any American city where the police are able to monitor the movements of an entire population, and that is quite dangerous. And Avon, I wanted to get your thoughts on why do you think this program was implemented earlier this year? There have been talks about having a spy plane program over the years, but why do you think that this was the year to actually start implementing it? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons. I think that, uh, you know, there has been a rise in, particularly in conversations related to public safety, there's been a rise in the use of surveillance technology as a solution to questions of public safety. Um, I think that there's a general interest, particularly by, you know, private companies um, in technology that kind of advances um, the use of surveillance-related technologies. But as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the increased use of surveillance in addressing issues of public safety, I think, have been kind of on the rise as you see things like predictive policing and other kinds of um, technology. And then you pair that if you talk about the specific Baltimore context, you pair that with, um, you know, a five-year in a row spike in homicides in Baltimore City, you have a city that's pretty desperate for anything that will address um, the, the homicide rates in Baltimore City. And so I think Baltimore just happens, particularly in this particular moment, there's just a perfect storm of dynamics that then made um, this particular moment, given that, you know, there was a mayor who wasn't elected mayor, but happened to, you know, just land the seat, given a, a scandal that, pre, you know, mayor prior to Jack Young, you know, so you just have a variety of factors that I think just made a perfect storm for this program to be rolled out when it, when it did. David, can I get your thoughts on, you know, why we decided to file this lawsuit to stop the spy plane program? We sued because we think it's unconstitutional, um, but also because um, we think the precedent it sets of the persistent surveillance of everywhere that everybody goes is literally the privacy nightmare come to life. This kind of all-seeing eye watching where everybody goes all the time is what totalitarian governments have always dreamed of and what privacy advocates and civil rights advocates and civil liberties advocates have uh, warned about and feared for decades. And here we have it being deployed in Baltimore with the city of Baltimore serving as the guinea pigs uh, for this technology, and um, really, how could we not uh, sue to try to stop it? Um, because if it is rolled out here, it will be rolled out in other cities across the country. Indeed, Ross McNutt, the founder of Persistent Surveillance Systems, the private company that is marketing this technology, has been trying to find buyers ever since he first was able to deploy it in secret back in 2016. And as for the constitutional claims, we think it's actually quite clear that um, based on 
recent Supreme Court decisions, specifically the United States versus Carpenter case from 2017, that the government's acquisition of long-term movement data about people is a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. That's precisely what the court held in that case, although that case was about the government acquiring data about one person. Here, the government will be acquiring that data about every person. And so it's even uh, worse, even more of a Fourth Amendment violation. And the reason that the court said that that was a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment is because it recognized that uh, for the government to be able to acquire that data at will is such a fundamental alteration of the relationship between state and or the police and the people uh, because that movement data is so revealing about virtually all of the privacies of life, about who you live with, who you meet with, who your doctor is, whether you go to AA meetings, whether you go to church. It's sort of impossible to even list or think of all the ways in which this invades people's privacy. It's, it is the technological equivalent of having a police officer follow each of us every time we walk out the door. And if that happened in real life, of course, I think we would all viscerally experience and understand the privacy implications. But because this is being done remotely via uh, sophisticated cameras and software, we don't experience it viscerally. Um, and of course, there would be no way for a police officer to follow everybody every time they walk out the door. There aren't enough police to do that. But this technology allows surveillance on a scale and of a nature um, that has never been done before. And that's why it's so dangerous. And that's also why its uh, use on this mass scale um, is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And Devon, I wanted to I also ask why Legions of a Beautiful Struggle decided to become the lead plaintiff in this case. There, there are a couple of fundamental reasons. The first is that the history of surveillance and radical Black social movements that challenged the status quo was particularly resonant for us as we you know, thought about the implications of a program like aerial surveillance. So when you think about the counterintelligence program of the United States government that was unveiled by the Church Commission in the, in the 1970s, where federal government in coordination with local law enforcement, you know, participated in, you know, political assassinations, disruption of social movements, infiltration of social movements. Um, you know, that kind of activity is something that is strengthened by having the level of surveillance that I think is, um, you know, part and parcel to the aerial surveillance program, you know, that was launched in Baltimore. And so for us, it was really important to just kind of set that precedent, you know, particularly when you think about, you know, many of the political prisoners that, you know, remain behind bars, um, you know, as a result of the, you know, surveillance state um, that was an extension of these programs that counter black social movements. So that was that was one particular reason. And as an organization that is explicitly, you know, black and radical in our political disposition, you know, that is explicitly challenging the status quo. You know, I think it's it, we thought it was particularly incumbent upon us to participate to whatever extent we could in challenging at least, you know, the legitimacy of that level of aerial surveillance on the grounds that as a black person. Um, you know, challenging the, you know, kind of the American social order that, um, that we fight back against the kinds of um, technologies or surveillance that would, you know, put folks who are challenging the American social order um, at risk. So I think that's one reason. The second, just a, you know, very local context, which is that uh, Baltimore and its police department is, you know, has demonstrated that, that it has a level of corruption 
that even if even if you know we just take aside the history of how surveillance has been used to you know squash social movements baltimore and the corruption of the police department um you know just given the role that's played in in my estimation in making baltimore less safe certainly don't want to give a police department with that level of corruption um access to that level of power like that level of surveillance that's just a level of power that um as, as i see it would just exacerbate their capacity for the kind of corruption that, that i think has done great harm in baltimore actually Daniel, can can i ask you to expand on that a little bit for those who don't know when you talk about the corruption and abuse of power in the baltimore police department can you give us some examples and, and talk of your concerns around that yeah, I mean, the most well-known of as of late is the Gun Trace Task Force, which was a unit within the police department that, you know, there was a federal trial where the officers, several officers were convicted um, criminally where they, um, these officers were engaged in planning drugs, robbing people who were selling drugs, selling drugs themselves, um, you know, among, among a whole host of other things. And in fact, I actually remember a couple of years before the trial came to light, I remember having conversations with folks in West Baltimore who said some of the names of the officers that ended up being on trial um, in the Gun Trace Task Force who were telling me that they were selling drugs and that they were robbing people and beating people up. Um, so there was that I had gotten, I had had my own conversations with people about that being stuff that was happening before it kind of hit the media and before um, they were on trial. Um, you know, whether you look at the death of Sean Suter, where, you know, it was ruled a homicide, but there are lots of people who I think believe that it wasn't, and I think have reason to believe that there was more foul play um, at hand. Um, you know, and then if you just read the 2016 Department of Justice report, on the patterns of practices of the Baltimore City Police Department, you just have, you know, dozens of examples of police abuses that that are documented, that are part of the federal government study of the police department. Um, and I want to encourage the listeners to to read that. And so it's just it's just it's so extensive. Um, it's a part of the justification as to why there is a consent decree um, for Baltimore between the Baltimore City and the United States the United States Department of Justice. And also to be clear, the consent decree has not been fully implemented as of right now. Right, that's correct. They're still having to, you know, implement some of the recommendations of the consent decree. And the consent decree, I would argue, is, is relatively limited um, in the sense that it can deal primarily with some of the internal practices of the police department. It doesn't get necessarily at the policy level where some of the most transformative change needs to happen. Um, but I think to the I think to the point that I think is inferred by the question or the statement of it not being fully implemented, it just goes to show um, just the level of corruption that exists within incompetence that exists within the department that a consent decree that just deals with the internal policies of the police department um, are hard to um, operationalize just because of all the just again, just just a lot of the dysfunction within the department. So, David, I wanted to talk a bit about the history of aerial surveillance in Baltimore. Yes, the spy plane program was used back in 2016, but the FBI has also used aerial surveillance in Baltimore as well. Can you talk a bit about that? We don't we don't know as much about that um, because the FBI has been quite closed mouth. But in 2015. Uh, during the uprising in Baltimore, uh, folks who watch the websites that uh, map uh, flight paths all over the country noticed that there were planes circling over Baltimore, just as the spy planes are doing now. Uh, and we did a public records request to try to get more information about that and confirmed that those were, well, actually revealed <laughs> that the FBI had a, a secret air force of surveillance planes and that it was the FBI that was uh, flying over Baltimore 
uh, as the demonstrations in the wake of Freddie Gray's murder were unfolding. Uh, and we've seen similar things happen now uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd with uh, various government agencies, including the National Guard, the Department of Homeland Security, and I believe also the FBI doing the same thing, um, putting surveillance planes in the air over American cities uh, as demonstrations were occurring. And again, I think this is part of a pattern uh, of seeking the technological capability to do wide area mass surveillance and indeed mass surveillance itself that we see the government seeking to acquire um, because it gives powers that individual surveillance simply can't. If the government can vacuum up data about all of us all the time and then go back and look at it at will, that is the kind of perfect surveillance that governments and especially totalitarian governments have always dreamed of. And our technological capabilities now are enabling that in more and more ways, whether it's aerial surveillance or internet surveillance or telephone surveillance or email surveillance. Uh, all of these are uh, incredibly dangerous and uh, things that uh, either the U.S. government or now local governments like Baltimore um, have been deploying. And in the case of the U.S. government, the justification was terrorism. Um, and here in Baltimore, uh, the justification was murder. But as I said, when you look at what uh, PSS, Persistent Surveillance Systems, and the Baltimore Police Department did when uh, they did it in secret, it wasn't about terrorism. It wasn't about murder. It was about traffic accidents and catching dirt bikers and that logic of, you know, once you have the, the tool, you use it for every conceivable use is, I think, inescapable, which is why it's so dangerous. And also, Davon, as, you know, a Black-led uh, political grassroots think tank in Baltimore, I wanted to, to ask you to expand on an earlier point that you have made and talk about the government's history of spying on Black residents for challenging systemic oppression and racism. Can you talk a bit about like the, the history behind, you know, this really like a founded idea that, you know, if, if the government is allowed to do this, they will use this and abuse this power, particularly for people of color and Black residents in particular? So the history of the use of surveillance and just state-sponsored social movement disruption um, you know, again, it's extensive. When you think, for instance, about, you know, Marcus Garvey in the 19-teens and 20s and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the largest Black mass movement um, in the history of the Western world that had, you know, almost 2 million members worldwide, um, was heavily infiltrated by the United States federal government, by the kind of the forerunner of what eventually became um, the FBI um, and was hugely instrumental in really disrupting, you know, creating division within um, the, the United Negro Improvement Association, you know, as an example, you know, even within the NAACP, um, you know, you had, you know, Joel Spingar, you know, a found one of the co-founders of the NAACP and a high ranking first within that organization who you know, was, you know, it's been found out that, you know, he was paid by the United States military to spy uh, on the NAACP in the 1920s. You know, and if you just, you know, go further, I mean, even if you look at, you know, the 1960s or 70s, um, you know, when you look at 
you know, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King was heavily surveilled, um, you know, so whether it's surveillance of like his extramarital affairs, um, you know, whether it's like correspondence directly, you know, with, with King, folks trying to urge him to stop doing the work he was doing, you know, whether it's like the, you know, the nation of Islam and, you know, it being heavily infiltrated. In fact, the national secretary, you know, John Ali, um, was understood to be, you know, at the very least an informant with the, with the federal government. You look at Baltimore, um, and well, if you look nationally, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, another organization that was heavily infiltrated um, and surveillance was used to disrupt the Black Panther Party's efforts. But even in Baltimore, the founder of the Baltimore branch of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was a person hired by um, the FBI and that, um, well, the federal government. So, I mean, the history of, you know, just infiltration in Black social movements, you know, is extensive and surveillance plays a big role. You know, the documenting and keeping tabs on the activities of these organizations is a level of, you know, that for me, it is the, it is the rationale as to why you don't want state-sanctioned surveillance because it serves as a way to protect the social order. And Black people's history in this country is an example of how surveillance was heavily used as a tool to be disruptive of folks challenging the social order, uh, which, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of one of those stated rights of Americans to be able to, you know, voice our, voice our opposition to the status quo. And surveillance has served as a, you know, important deterrent to the activity that constitutes those challenges to the status quo that we're supposed to be entitled to. And David, could I ask you to expand on um, a, a point you had brought up earlier? Cyclones in Baltimore actually are not new. Back in 2016, they ran, but they ran a secret um, over the city of Baltimore. Can I, you know, just get you to, to expand a bit about what the when that program was done secretly, what was it used for? Um, you know, what did we find um, uh, after we found out about the program? What did we find about the use of, of the program? Well, one of the most, uh, I think there's several important um, lessons to be learned about the secret use of the, of the spy planes in 2016. If you want to understand the true intent of something look not at what uh, politicians say publicly, but what they do when they think no one is watching what they're doing. And so what we saw about the use of the spy plane in 2016, first, despite the attempts to, to justify the program by saying it will uh, you know, magically solve the homicide rate in Baltimore, um, its most common use, by far, the largest category of cases that it was used for, was traffic accidents. And that mirrors the way in which surveillance technologies migrate from the military to law enforcement and metastasize within law enforcement. So every surveillance technology is sold uh, by claiming it's necessary to keep us safe. And then inevitably, uh, once its use becomes institutionalized, its use migrates to all of the other spheres in which law enforcement operates, um, having nothing to do with solving murders. But then the other important thing to remember about the deployment in 2016 is that the police department specifically asked Ross McNutt when the planes were flying in secret to fly them overhead when uh, the verdicts were going, when the first verdict was going to be read uh, in the first case of an officer being tried for killing Freddie Gray. And so it was explicitly used to monitor uh, political protests. And I think that, you know, I agree with what Davon was saying, but we don't, 
we don't even need to go back uh, to the 1970s to see the explicit use of surveillance to monitor uh, political protest. It happened right in front of our eyes uh, here in Baltimore in 2016. And yet, somehow, we think it's okay to give the same guy who did this in secret the contract uh, to do it all over again. It's like giving the key to your house to the person who just robbed it. There, there's something so warped and insane about this that it's really hard to, to fathom. And David, I wanted to, to switch gears a bit, actually, and ask you um, what you have you been hearing from uh, Baltimore residents and community members about the spy planes program? Because it definitely has been a mixed view, um, depending on, on who you talk to. Yeah, it's very mixed, and, it, and, it's, and it's one of those things. So there are two layers to, to that. Um, so yes, it's very mixed. Um, I think the issue of violence in Baltimore um, has reached levels where folks in, in, in the community are desperate for solutions to address it. And so there are folks that I greatly respect and who certainly are legitimate folks in their works in terms of helping the community or supporters of the aerial surveillance program, not because they think the program is legitimate, not because they not because they disagree with anything that David or I have said about the the program, the basis of the program being legitimate, but be, they, that their support comes almost singularly from the perspective that violence is so out of control that we should try everything possible to address it. And the difference between those folks and myself is, is that I'm clear that the impacts of a program like this being legitimized outweigh in the intermediate and long-term the potential negative impacts on the community than whatever immediate stated benefits would come from a program like this. And it's important to be clear that, you know, most folks who have described themselves as supporters have not been able to ask, you know, to, to substantiate a claim that this program would have any immediate public safety impacts. And I don't know that any expert, whether it's the police commissioner or other advocates of the program have been able to establish credibly um, an argument that this would have any you know, impact on the short, short-term public safety challenges that Baltimore City is facing. And so, but again, that's, that's really the difference is that there are folks who are like, David, you write about all the stuff you're saying, but people are dying and we need to just try anything to, to address the fact that folks are dying. And I think that speaks to um, what I think was the kind of strategic thinking um, that folks behind this program uh, we're doing, which is that Baltimore is in a desperate place, and when folks are in a desperate place, you know, folks are more willing to um, forsake the long-term impact, negative impacts of something, if it can, you know, from their perspective, plausibly address, um, you know, short-term issues, right? And so, so there are some folks in the community that are supporters of it, and, you know, and they're not disingenuous in their support of it, and I just disagree with their calculus as to the benefits and disadvantages. Um, in addition to what I mentioned earlier about the corruption of the police department, which to me is the other difference, is that many of them have some kind of fundamental trust in the police department, and I just don't, I think, for very well-documented and reasons that most folks have a hard time refuting. Um, the other... Um, I think there are also folks, there are lots of folks, though, who, um, who, who oppose the program as we do in the community, and many of them, being fully aware of the current public safety challenges, are clear that a public safety-centric approach to public safety is not effective and has not been effective. Um, just look at the police budget, so you look at the fact that, you know, We've been at or close to half a billion dollars over the past several years, and it has not significantly addressed the public safety challenges that Baltimore has faced. Um, 
You know, so there are folks who are clear about that. And there are folks who are also clear about the history of law enforcement. You know, the, I mean, the distrust of law enforcement runs deep, whether it's, you know, people kind of on the street level who've been abused and harassed and seen police do corrupt things, or whether it's people who just remember the history of police being disruptive to the activities of social movements. You know, you have a contingency of folks who, for those reasons, um, their opposition is, you know, pretty clear. And actually, uh, Dave, and I, I did want to ask you, uh, 2016, um, there was a movement for political change um, in, in Baltimore, and particularly police accountability. And, you know, fast forward four years later, and we are again in a national um, uprising um, after the, the murder of George Floyd by police officers. Given the the, the protests that are going on, you know, what are your concerns, you know, in this moment um, as we're speaking, as people are, are, you know, again, in the streets calling for police reform, calling for systemic changes, um, you know, speak, you know, calling for end of systemic racism. What are your concerns about the abuse or how the program can be used um, in this moment and in this movement? Well, I mean, and, I, and I'll be very frank and direct um, about, I mean, when I think about some of the folks who I know are big supporters of the program, we think about an entity like the Able Foundation, <clears throat> headed, headed by, you know, Bob Embry, um, who's, you know, been, you know, a force in, in Baltimore politics for, for decades at this point. And he's somebody that LBS has openly criticized um, because of the kind of, the, the worldview he operates in, which is, you know, many can describe as, you know, basic very much in this kind of notion of social engineering, you know, this idea that black progress, you know, can be engineered, you know, by folks with a scientific perspective that sees black people as objects of other people's thought experiments. But just as a person that's clear about the history, you know, as a person who, you know, is clear about how Baltimore politics works, which is folks like Bob Embry, you know, exercise significant influence, and knowing what, what, what David just mentioned in terms of the use of the AO surveillance program in 2016 in secret, and which LBS, you know, we actually made a statement during that time, you know, actively criticizing the fact that that program was used. You know, when I think about all those things together, you know, I just can't help but think of, you know, the potential uses by people in power against those who are challenging the institutions of power in Baltimore. I can't help but think of the potential danger that that puts folks in, um, you know, who would be challenging, um, you know, the social order. So, David, given the recent primary election in Baltimore, the person who won the Democratic nomination for mayor, Brandon Scott, in the past has opposed the spy planes program. Do you think the pressure still needs to be on him to end the program if he becomes mayor? And what do you see for the future of the spy planes program? Well, um, the pressure needs to be on um, for sure, because there are certainly groups that are pressing for this to continue. PSS, the company that markets the technology, obviously wants it to continue, and they've been engaged in a well-developed uh, lobbying campaign um, for years, literally since uh, the secret use of the technology was disclosed and the program was shut down. Um, they've been lobbying ever since to, to resume it. And I think Davon is correct that they saw in Baltimore an opportunity because of the city's desperation. And there's something deeply disturbing and indeed sick about the fact that it is the failures of governance and policing in Baltimore that have now become the excuse and the justification for deploying the most far-reaching surveillance system ever deployed in an American city with a private company exploiting the misery and fear of uh, people in Baltimore, which is not to say that the concern about crime in general and murder in, in particular is not real or legitimate. Um, as a resident of Baltimore, it's one that certainly I personally share, and I think everyone involved in the case, whether it's the ACLU generally or the organizations or individuals who are plaintiffs or the lawyers, shares 
Um, but the logic of saying, you know, we're desperate, we'll do anything is itself uh, a kind of dangerous logic because it has no limits. If the legitimate concern about crime can justify this, then it can justify anything. And um, again, we have to also look at the fact that part of what we see huge numbers of people demanding now, today, um, is a reorientation of how we think about public safety um, to focus not only on mechanisms of um, coercion and control and punishment, but on how we create community safety through the uplift uh, of the communities most affected and um, community-based uh, violence prevention uh, strategies, of which there are numerous examples uh, of empirically successful outcomes, and yet um, we continue to devote these incredibly outsized and lopsided budgets that focus only on the mechanisms of coercion, control, and punishment, uh, which is not to say that there's never any need for police, but there is lots more that we can and should be doing uh, that could achieve public safety in very different ways. And David, I wanted to also ask you, what's next in the in the case? Where where is the case going in, in the future? Well, uh, when when we filed the case, we sought what's called a preliminary injunction, meaning a temporary order uh, halting the program, um, which, based on our claim that this uh, mass acquisition of movement data about everybody in Baltimore uh, every time they walk outside violates the Fourth Amendment. We think that that claim was well-founded. Um, unfortunately, the district court here disagreed and denied the preliminary injunction. We have appealed that denial uh, to the uh, federal appellate court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, and that appeal has now been fully briefed. Um, all the briefs have been filed, and we're now awaiting word from the Fourth Circuit as to whether there will be an argument or whether it will be decided on the papers, and if so, when that argument will be. We've asked for it to be uh, expedited and to happen over the summer, even though the court is in recess then, and we will see what they say. So we're hopeful that there will be a uh, quick decision from the Fourth Circuit on whether a preliminary injunction should have been granted, and we hope that the Fourth Circuit will overturn the district court's denial of a prelim preliminary injunction and halt this program in its tracks because with every passing day, PSS's cameras and computers are collecting and storing movement data about everybody in Baltimore, um, even as both as they go about their daily lives and as people in Baltimore turn out day after day after day as part of the national wave of protests about policing and police brutality and across the country. The program began on May 1st following the denial of the preliminary injunction and is the, the so-called pilot program is scheduled to last for six months, at which point the city says they will then assess whether to continue it indefinitely. Um, because there are very powerful interests pushing for it to continue, um, not just PSS itself, but uh, the Downtown Partnership uh, and others, uh, people who are concerned about this cannot simply assume either that uh, the litigation will end it or that Brandon Scott will end it. Uh, he will be facing 
pressures on the other side and uh, it's time for people to make their views and voices known and heard um, to ensure that this does not continue. And also, you know, as part of, you know, of this campaign to try to end the Spike Plains program, we are, I think everyone um, who is supportive of this is also in agreement that we need to invest in Black communities in Baltimore. We have to invest in um, alternatives to policing, but also, you know, just more fundamental like social services and other uh, other things actually uplift Black life and Black people if you really want to see systemic changes. Uh, for instance, um, another plaintiff in the case, um, uh, Erica Bridgeford uh, with the ceasefire, um, with Baltimore ceasefire, has been doing amazing and effective, documented effective work to actually reduce crime um, in, in Baltimore. But I also wanted to get your, your thoughts, Davon, on you know, given this particular time, what are some of the things that LBS is, is hoping that leaders do? Of course, ending the spy plane program, yes, but also, you know, what, what else do, does um, LBS think is important for Baltimore leaders to do it and wants to encourage Baltimore residents to help push for um, during, during this uh, time of, uh, of calls for systemic changes to policing? Um, well, I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be, I think, the most important is a strategy um, and a set of policies around um, community oversight and control of law enforcement. And I think that that's important. One, we think about the issue of police brutality and police abuses. You know, one of the things that has, you know, made the Baltimore City Police Department so corrupt um, and have been prone to engage its officers to engage in abuse is the fact that they know that they won't get caught essentially the police are policing themselves and the policies that govern how police policing is conducted in the state of Maryland provides protections that allow police to be the primary ones holding themselves accountable. And so I think that has clearly been a recipe for disaster. Um, and so policies that um, allow for greater levels of transparency particularly things like repealing the LEOBR, from which Maryland was in many respects oh, yeah. um, kind of a forerunner. Dave, um, can, for those who don't know, can you say what LEOBR um, is? Oh yeah, right, I'm sorry about that. The Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, um, which is um, a policy, I believe codified in 1974 here in Maryland. And Maryland is one of 16 states, as I understand it, that have law enforcement officers' bills of rights, which provide police officers protections above and beyond their constitutional rights. Um, and so that's an example of a policy that's been in you know, statute for a long period of time. And it's those kinds of statutes that have created a context where law enforcement has been able to police themselves. And so I think both on the issue of police brutality, but also if you think about on the issue of public safety, um, you know, so when you think about the failures of the police to be anywhere near effective in dealing with issues of public safety, um, you know, if you have a police department that's policing itself, then it makes it impossible for the community to assess and have a hand in the nature of how public safety is administered in the community. And so I think um, that's one of many policies that I think will be central and important in addressing. Um, you know, law enforcement and its role um, here in there. And also, David, you know, what are some ways for people to oppose the spy plane program? People should let the current police commissioner know their views, and there's links on our website to do that. People should let the current mayor know their views. People should let the Democratic nominee to be the next mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott, know their views. People should let the city council know their views, though I will point out that one of the um, insanities of life in Maryland and in Baltimore is that uh, the city council, which has in the past been quite clearly quite opposed uh, to this program, has no uh, apparent power to halt the program because of the Baltimore Police Department's 
uh, nominal status in state law dating back to the Civil War era uh, of being a state agency. The city solicitor is the city's chief lawyer. The city solicitor says that the Baltimore City Council cannot legislate policy about what BPD will do. If we want to talk about police accountability at, at the most basic level, in every other local jurisdiction in Maryland, and indeed, to my knowledge, in every other local jurisdiction throughout the country, the police department is literally accountable to uh, the elected representatives of the people who they are supposed to serve. Uh, and so local jurisdictions can uh, set policy for their department, whether it's uh, regarding use of force or as is being examined in cities all around the country right now and has happened in cities all around the country uh, in the wake of George Floyd's killing or about uh, the acquisition and use of surveillance technology as recently happened uh, in New York City. But here in Baltimore, uh, the city council can't set policy about anything uh, having to do with the BPD. Again, unlike every other city uh, or local jurisdiction in Maryland and around the country, um, because the BPD is declared in state law uh, to be a state entity. And so the only uh, elected body with the power to set policy is the state legislature, um, which meets for only three months of the year in Annapolis, not in Baltimore. Um, there is no one in the state legislature or uh, in state government who exercises any uh, oversight authority over the BPD at all. Uh, and that's a completely insane and untenable situation. Um, and I think the fact that it has not um, been rectified uh, is difficult to uh, understand um, except uh, by the fact that Baltimore is a majority black city. It's difficult to imagine uh, any other city uh, anywhere in the country being told, no, you do not have the right uh, through your duly elected representatives control the police department that is supposed to serve and protect you. So David, one point that Commissioner Harrison has often toted is that the the resolution of the plaintiffs as of right now is that it, it can't identify a person by their gender or by their race and therefore you know it can't be used in a racially biased way. Uh, can you talk a bit about how that statement is misleading, um, if I'm being kind. Yeah, it's it's one of those sort of truthy statements um, that contain a kernel of truth and yet completely hide the truth. So it, it is true that uh, if you look at a single frame uh, of the video that as Ross McNutt is fond of saying, and as Commissioner Harrison is fond of saying, people look like a dot, but you can separate one dot from another dot, so you can keep your eye on the dot that you're interested in. And more importantly, while looking at that dot, you don't get a picture of their face, and so you don't immediately identify the person from looking at a single frame in the video. We have to remember that this whole system, um, which the Arnold Foundation is funding to the tune of $3 million for six months, um, was created for one and only one reason and has only one purpose for existing and being deployed. And that one and only reason, one and only purpose is to identify people. It has no other purpose. And in fact, if it couldn't identify anyone, we wouldn't even be having this discussion because it would never be deployed. This technology was invented in Iraq, uh, invented for the war in Iraq for the purpose of identifying people and identifying the dots is the one and only reason that it exists and the one and only reason that it is being deployed. So when Commissioner Harrison says you can't identify anyone, um, he's not 
telling the truth. Well, one thing is sort of the the city's current claims about how it will be used, uh, that it'll be used um, only for uh, murders, robberies, um, shootings, and carjackings, uh, and talking about how none of that is enforceable in any way, um, both because it's not contained in any law and because there's also a big exception that says it can also be used when, for any other purpose that Commissioner Harrison wants, um, and talking about the fact that when they are tracing movement, they're not only tracing the movements of all the dots at those crime scenes, but all the people who those dots uh, meet with and all the people who those people meet with. So two hops, uh, as they say. Um, so that's a vast network of uh, people. The, the thing to fear is not just sort of conscious abuse of power, um, but the logic of law enforcement. Um, and it's the logic of law enforcement treats um, uh, political protest as inherently dangerous and uh, uh, something to be concerned about. We, we see that in really dramatic and militarized ways now in the militaristic response to uh, demonstrations uh, across the United States and, of course, in the insane, insane uh, ravings of uh, the president and his uh, uh, defenders and supporters. Um, but we see it also in, um, for example, uh, the, the scandal that we uncovered in the Maryland State Police, again, not going back uh, very far, only to 2010, um, when through public records requests, we revealed that the state police were um, uh, surveilling and indeed infiltrating um, peaceful political protest groups um, all over the state and across the political spectrum uh, and um, storing information about them in a database in which they were all um, incomprehensibly labeled as terrorists, even though there was no actual suspicion that any of the people or groups were involved in anything uh, illegal at all, much less terrorism. And uh, when you heard the, the um, superintendent of the state police talking about it at the time, you could hear um, not just metaphorically, but, but literally um, that he saw, he sought to defend it and justify it um, based on this idea that there's something inherently dangerous and disruptive about protest. And that logic pervades um, not just law enforcement, um, but I think as Davon was also saying, uh, um, the politics of this country and um, is part of the reason that these kinds of mass surveillance uh, systems are so dangerous. Well, David, Davon, thank you so much for um, telling us a bit more about the history of surveillance um, and privacy concerns here in Baltimore, particularly for Black residents. It's, it's an enlightening conversation uh, that we've had, and I'm hoping that the spy planes programs are, are numbered. I share that hope. <laughs> Thanks for doing yeah. this. Yep, yep, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to our website, aclu-md.org, to tell Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison to stop the spy planes program. This show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland, because we are still practicing social distancing and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. 
I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.